Tonight, I want to do three things, and I'm going to try to speed through them so we're not here all night. One of them is to kind of review what we've talked about already, because some of us have been in on different parts of it. I just want to do what we usually do sometimes as we close the series, kind of do the big review. Second, I want to focus just tonight briefly on Christians are too overly focused on decisions and on conversions, which is a criticism that's raised about Christians. And then I want to throw it open to you. So that's what we're doing tonight. Next week, we're probably just going to do a conclusion where we talk about what can be done. So no more new stuff next week. We're going to try to tread over what can we do. And then a new series starting in a couple of weeks. Morgan, two or three weeks ago, challenged us about how little we knew about other religions. And that seemed to spark a good conversation afterwards. And we talked about a series that we haven't done in almost three years, going through all of the major and minor religions. So that's kind of where we are. Here's what I'd like you to think about tonight. And we're going to do this towards the end, but I want you to start thinking about it now. Let these thoughts kind of emanate. I want you to hypothetically assume that all of the pastors in America are going to tune into a special broadcast, and the question that they're asking is the following. If you could start from scratch and redesign the church in any way that you think it would work best, what would it look like? How would the church operate? And I don't mean like, you don't have to tell me like the mechanics of it. I just want to know what are the features, since we've been talking for so many weeks about things that don't work, and you guys are in that age group that everybody is trying to get their opinions on. Tonight, at the end, I want to throw it open and just hear from you any idea. In fact, I'm going to ask Anthony a little bit later on to just write down what it is we come up with that you think would be a feature of this great church. What would be different from the churches we know today, and what elements would you keep? So just think about that for a second. Over the next 10 minutes, if I can do this fast enough, I'm going to review what we've covered and then come back to a little bit of new material and then end here. So let that kind of sit in the back of your mind as we go through what we've already covered. Here's what we've done. From the survey about the attitudes that non-Christians believe that Christians possess, we saw that the highest one was that the church was somehow anti-homosexual. 91% responded to the Barna Group research saying that the church is anti-homosexual. Here's what we learned. That more often than not, Christians are known for what they're against rather than what they're for. And we spent time analyzing all the different expressions of Christianity that seems to begin with God hates, which just seems like those words don't really work well together all the time. But that's our expression, and that's the message that so many people receive. Here's some statistics that we threw out, and actually some of these were the subject of further research since the time that we did this. Four out of five, it sounds like I'm going to say four out of five dentists, four out of five evangelical Christians believe that homosexual relationships should be illegal, outlawed. Like, I'm not sure what that means. Like, you go to jail? But that's the survey result. Four out of five Christians believe that. Two out of five Christians believe that homosexuals should be fired from the public schools. 14%, only 14% of Christians would be highly motivated to help HIV and AIDS orphans overseas because many of them believe that this whole thing is a punishment from God. Just think about that for a second. I underline the word orphans because 14% would help orphans, as if what the orphans have to do with it. You know, they've been orphaned by AIDS. 25% of Americans and 33% of Christians believe that there are some sins that God cannot forgive. 
Now, I can understand why non-Christians would think, yeah, there's some things that God wouldn't forgive, right? Because they don't know much about our doctrines, our theology, right? But what's, I mean, if there's anything that we say loud and clear, it seems that like God can forgive all sins, right? Isn't that the whole idea, no matter what you've done? 33% of Christians actually believe that God cannot forgive certain sins. Here's what we said to wrap up our discussions on homosexuality. We all struggle with sexual sin in a fallen world. Heterosexual or homosexual sin. Our sexuality, the way we express it more often than not, is in a sinful way. We should learn to be humble in that and recognize it. We learn together that true love is what we need to be expressing for people regardless of what their sexual orientation is. And then we can look to the Bible together to talk about homosexual activity. And the reason I say together that we need to examine the Bible, look, there are expressions of Christianity that believe that it's not a sin. I happen to disagree with those. But the point is not to break into more divides over it. We spent the whole night kind of processing that. You know, there's another talk that we did about that. The main point is we need to learn to love people, period. We need to recognize that it's become a real obstacle to people the way that we treat people. It's an obstacle to homosexual people and heterosexual people. Anybody who looks at the way we judge and point fingers gets turned off to Christianity. There are people who've never struggled with any kind of homosexuality at all and still hate the church for the way that it treats others. We need to be aware of it. And finally, we need to really look at learning to truly hate our sin, our own sin, before we walk around talking about how we hate other people's sin. And you know that I threw out that one of the most careless statements that we make is that, you know, we'll love the sinner but hate the sin. More often than not, we hate the sinner and we hate the sin as long as it's their sin. We don't hate our sin. We tolerate our sin. So before we start telling people that we're going to love the sinner and hate the sin, I think we should just love people. And we should probably hate all sin ours first before we start talking about hating anybody else's sin. Otherwise, we're really looking at the speck in somebody else's eye and ignoring the plank in ours. We should get those down. So that's just a review on that part. Second thing we looked at, the church being judgmental and hypocritical. 87% felt it was judgmental. 85% felt it was hypocritical. Here's what we found out there in review. We found out that when you ask Christians what Christianity is all about, most, well, the highest number, 37% of them, thought Christianity was just about not sinning and being a good person that that's really what the Christian life was, just not sinning. As opposed to all these other things that they could have picked, like discipleship, evangelism, worship, relationship, service, stewardship, faith, they picked just not sinning. As if once you receive salvation, then you can get on the treadmill and earn it forever. Meanwhile, Christians your age believe that the following things on the screen are all morally acceptable. 59% thought cohabitation was, 58% gambling, 57% sexual thoughts, and it goes down. Sex outside of marriage, profanity, getting drunk, viewing pornography, having an abortion, having a same-sex relationship. Acceptable in varying degrees, but in large numbers. Remember, 85% of non-Christians know somebody who's a Christian. And if you ask them, is there any difference between a Christian's life and a non-Christian's life? Only 15% could ever find a difference. So what's the gist? The gist is this. If we tell people that our religion is about not sinning and being a good person, and then you see what we do, they think, you guys are all hypocrites. I like what Philip said when we had this discussion. He's like, but I'm trying to be a better person. I'm trying not to sin. I'm trying to follow what's in the Bible, 
Right. That would be good. We should be transparent and show people we're trying. But too often, we're telling, giving people the message that it's about being that way. That's the number one priority of Christianity. That's not the number one priority of Christianity. Being judgmental, same problem. If you communicate to people in the world that the message is basically don't sin, be good, which is a part of the Christian life. But if you communicate that that's what it's all about, no wonder we point fingers at each other in the church. We're always looking around to see who's in and who's out, who's, who's behaving right within our churches. We saw this quote from David Kinneman. He said, our judgmental attitude arises because we're trying to look good in front of other Christians instead of before God. And we don't care about outsiders to Christianity. We're trying to look good. Like we've just learned that being a Christian is like making sure that nobody can see our sin. It has nothing to do really with whether we're sinning or where our heart is. Just make sure nobody can see it. And then we're okay. If somebody sees it, oh, that's bad. Because then they're going to think we're not a Christian. The night we talked about this, Morgan made a point that how often it is that we don't care what God sees. How much we're so worried about what other people see. No wonder we're so judgmental about one another and point to each other about what we're each doing. Remember this thing that breaks our churches apart is not, I mean, it, it's not a small thing. Jesus in John 17, when he's praying for the church, basically says that the reason that the church needs to be unified is because that's the way the world's going to know that you sent me. So by implication, when we break the church into little splinters and when we point fingers and say, you're not a Christian because of this and you're not a Christian because of this and you don't practice right and you're not fellowshipping with us, we're proving to the world that God did not send Jesus. Now, of course, whatever our actions do will never change the truth of the matter. But he was trying to say that this is the way you're going to show them. May they be brought to complete unity. Let the world know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. So our actions have severe implication. Jesus specifically prayed for our unity so that we could better take the gospel message to people, and we are blowing it. We also looked at Christians being too involved in politics, something that 75% of respondents said. That night we noticed this, that if you ask non-Christians who's the most well-known Christians in the world, they've cited the Pope and George Bush. It wasn't much different when you asked Christians. They cited the Pope and George Bush and put Billy Graham on top of it. Those were their top answers. No wonder we're associated with politics so much. Here was what we said were some solutions that we should look at about our political involvement. Just some things to think about. And again, these are all summaries. Go back to the actual talks. We went much deeper. But here's some things we pulled from that talk. First, the Bible often mandates standards that are not popular in today's society, but that doesn't mean that we should just simply move away from them to be relevant. So there are times when we're going to have to take a stand for tough things. But more often, we use Christianity to support our own views, prejudices, and biases. We have a pre-existing view that we want to support, and we find Christianity in a way we twist it to support what we want. That's one of the reasons that we get too politically involved. That's why I wrote, other times Christians are hijacked by a political agenda. And we don't actually appreciate the cost of what it means when we politicize our faith. I was reading this thing called the Land Letter. I brought in a short description of it. Some of the top Christian leaders in America wrote a letter to President Bush justifying the invasion of Iraq on Christian grounds. 
not just the invasion, but a preemptive invasion. And using something called the just war theory, they wrote this long letter that they sent to him saying, we believe that the Bible literally covers you to do this. You should do this, and here are the reasons why. The description of it is a theological support for just war preemptive invasion of Iraq. I'd like to know what verses they found on that. And I mean, these people are not small people. These are huge leaders in America, including the leader of Campus Crusade for Christ and the leader of the Southern Baptist Convention, Chuck Colson from Prison Fellowship Ministries. I mean, just huge people and a number of others. Whether you think it's right or wrong for us to do this as a nation, I don't really understand how a group of pastors get together and write a letter saying this is something we should do. Here you go. We're giving you like a theological backing for your political actions in this country. And now look what's happened and how the church has been tainted by it. No wonder everybody thinks that the number one Christian in America is George Bush. America is not and has never been a Christian nation. It's been a nation for much of its history that's been comprised of Christians, but that's changing rapidly. And finally, I said, we're not a government in exile. We're not waiting for the chance to retake the government so that we can impose our views on everybody. That's not our salvation. Our salvation is found in Christ, not in taking over the U.S. of A. As Christians, we're cultural change agents. We're bringing reconciliation between God and people. That's what we're doing. We're never going to legislate anybody into the kingdom. We're never going to pass enough laws or change enough people to say, okay, do this, and now suddenly America will all be saved. Another one, 72%, we found out, said that Christians were out of touch with reality, that we kind of live in a bubble and then we're sheltered. Meanwhile, if you look at what's going on in the world today, the way society is moving, it's so different than the Christian bubble that we build. While we're listening to Christian music and reading Christian novels and going to Christian movies and Christian concerts and Christian you know, theme parks and all these kinds of things, Christian museums, while we're doing all of these things, the rest of the world is looking at us going, what are those guys doing? Like, what a goofy world they live in, in that bubble. The worst thing about being a bubble is while you separate yourself from all the outside influence, you have separated yourself as an influence to the outside world. You've succeeded. You've locked yourself in. Now you have no influence on anybody on the outside. Our main point that night was to say this. Christians, we're called to be cross-cultural to cross divides, cultures, barriers, whatever it is to take the gospel to people, too often we end up being subcultural. We live in our own subculture. How did we do that? We become Christians. We're so excited. Step two, we become part of church life. It begins to feel good. We're on the road. We begin to fellowship with others. We start to get into it. And then before we know it, step three, we become part of the Christian bubble. Within two years, we don't know anybody who's not a Christian. Everything about us becomes Christianified. And then phase four, we become like Jonah, where we actually resent outsiders. We actually don't want them to convert. Check yourself on that for a moment. Think about that. Have we ever felt that way about anybody? Where you actually feel like, I don't really know if I want them to actually become a Christian or to repent? That's how Jonah felt. Morgan took us through these two. Insensitive to others, 70%. Not respecting of other faiths, 64%. Here are the points that were summarized that night. We as Christians claim to be exclusive and that Jesus' claim of being the only way is an exclusive claim. But we're kind of naive about other religions. That's why we're going to study them. Christians fail to see commonalities and truth in other religions. We just think, yeah, Christianity is the only truth. There could be no truth or nothing good about any other religion. 
And of course people are going to be offended about that. Of course people are not going to understand why we are ignoring everything about their religion and just saying, no, no, I don't need to hear anything about that. Let me just tell you about my religion. Today in Christianity, we live in a pluralistic world, especially in America, which is kind of where this series is centered. Morgan cited this statistic. If this trend continues, by 2042, there'll be more non-Christians than Christians in the United States, which is pretty shocking because there are not that many non-Christians right now unless you count like atheists and agnostics. But people of other religions will continue to grow and by implication that also means Christians are going down. We also talked about fundamentalism that night. Here were a summary of the points and the charges that were given to us. We need to be careful not to teach our own opinion as this is what God says. We often, we're not talking about doctrine, we're not talking about things that are written, we're talking about our opinion about things. We need to tread lightly whenever we use these kinds of words. We need to teach how to have fundamental beliefs without becoming fundamentalists. I mean, it's okay to have beliefs that are fundamental, to know what they are, and to believe in the foundation together and say, these are foundational to our faith. But being a fundamentalist is a different thing. It's an attitude shift in my mind of the way in which we adhere to those things and the way in which we want to impose them on other people. And... A theme we've seen over and over is we need to do all of this with love. Otherwise, we're not following 1 Peter 3.15 or 16. Do this with gentleness and respect. Okay. That's the big review. Let's wrap up with the last criticism that comes from David Kitteman's book, Unchristian, and then I'm going to throw it open to you guys. Here's a couple things to think about. The criticism that we're going to address right now is that we as a church are often too focused on converting others. Too focused just on salvation decisions and nothing that follows. And that's all we seem to want to do. A couple ways to look at it. Here's number one. First, how do people get to know Jesus? 71% of people come to Christ through some sort of relationship. Parent, relative, friend, or teacher, or somebody else, somebody like that. That's how they come to Christ. When we think of evangelism campaigns, what do we think of? What's an evangelism campaign? Is it like coming to Christ through a parent, friend, teacher? What's an evangelism campaign like? Preach it until they get it. Preach it? Okay. So some, like, you mean from a church or from streets or from where? From streets, from, you know, a Billy Graham crusade, from anything. Basically, you know, we're going to preach at people until they go, oh, you know what, you're right. Okay. All right, so preach it is one way. Any, any other great ideas for evangelism? Bring in really cool Christian bands, and then their Christians bring their non-Christian friends. And then Greg Glory gives a message if you'd like to bring your life to Christ. Come down on the Angel Stadium field, and you get to go down on the field, and then you accept Christ. Okay, so you kind of bring them to a concert. And then you take a donation out. All right, switcheroo. <laughs> okay, Philip. Yeah, lots of tracks. Yeah, tracks, okay. While you talk about tracks, let me bring up this statistic. So we know that 71% come through a relationship, okay? Here's this statistic that I thought was very interesting. Less than one half of 1% of people who come to Christ come through radio, television, and tracks combined. It's from Barna. Well, because a lot of people throw the tracks away, and Christian radio is all right, but the music's pretty cheesy for the most part. Actually, in Christian radio these days, the music is the only thing that's Christian. Like, I listen to hear if they're going to say the word Jesus once, 
in a two or three hour broadcast. And I'm like, if the, I mean, they say safe for the whole family and all the soccer moms in Orange County. Radio, like if you listen to Star 98.7, it's the same song over and over and over like every hour, right? Different artists, but playing the same 20 songs, right? But Christian radio is kind of similar. It's just they play the same song by 20 different artists, you know? So like 20 different artists will sing Lord, I Lift Your Name on High like at some point during the day. And you're like, wow, how can they have so many versions of the same song? But if you listen to Christian radio right now, one of the things that's happening, especially if they're owned by Salem, is, I mean, listen and see if you hear the word Jesus. Look at your watch and see how long it will take them to say the word Jesus. You could be there for three hours and not hear it. It's safe for the whole family, you know? Or the other one, it's safe for the little ears in your car. Okay, why does it matter that only less than one half of 1% come to Christ this way? It's just good for us to know because so many people have different ideas. We're going to talk about the method in a moment. Here's another one, just so that we know this. 82% of Christians already know or have heard a gospel message in some way. 82% of non-Christians have already gotten a gospel message or know what the basic tenets are. So we live in a different culture today in America. It's not like they haven't heard, like in the old days where you go, hey, have you heard that Jesus? I've heard it all. 53% of them have actually been asked to become a Christian at least already at one point in their life. So it means maybe the way we're doing it is not working. It's not that they haven't heard, they don't know. It means maybe that we're not getting it across the right way. 75% of those who have a relationship of some kind with Jesus at age 20 will lose it by 30. Yeah. Statistic, it doesn't shock me because when you look at the way our society and our culture is set up, it, it doesn't align a lot with what we really should be trying to do. And so rather than a lot of people trying to, to go along with what we should be doing, it's easier just to go with the culture, especially that age group, because even though we still believe that junior high and high schoolers are the, the most the age where they're trying to impress the most, it still follows many people into their 20s and 30s. Yeah, you know, when I went to law school, they had this statistic that they would tell you that one-third of you will not make it through the first year. So they used to have this thing where they would say, look to your left, look to your right, one of you will not be here in May. I don't know why they did this, maybe just to scare us more, you know, like we aren't already scared enough. If we were to do the same thing here, I would say, look to your left, Look to your right and look behind you. Three of you will not be here by the time you hit 30. That's what this statistic says. <laughs> I'm sorry, we confused Ryan. Let's try a more simple analogy. <laughs> Out of all the people sitting on this couch over here, at the age of 30, only one will be here. I'm going with Casey. <laughs> <laughs> now, we cited this statistic before when we did the series on how to ruin your life by 40, because we said by 40, out of one in 10 would make it. That would make any meaningful impact. They actually did some research to find out why this was happening. Here's the Barna Group's conclusion. Here's what it says. I'll read it to you because it's kind of small. We are learning that one of the primary reasons that ministry to young people fails to produce a lasting faith is because they are not being taught to think. You know, when I read that, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I'll tell you right now, there have been times when my temptation has been, when we do this group, to think of more fun topics and more light topics and just more fun stuff in general. And there have been a lot of times, as you know, that I've struggled with, like, why do we think so hard and go so long and go so deep? And why are our series so long? And why do we work so hard? And when I read this statistic, 
The only thing I could say is because I hope that some of it sticks. I hope that we learn to think. Because when we don't, you might fall out. On the way in here tonight, I met a guy that I know that goes to the school here of theology. And he's a nice guy. I knew him. And I was asking him how his studies were going. And he's like, well, I took some time off. I'm having kind of a crisis of faith. It, it's not just for people who like, well, I'm not sure I understand it. It's for people who've thought about it really hard sometimes. But we're not doing anybody any favor when we don't teach them to think. If you remember in our intro to this whole series, I read some letters from people who were checking out of the church. They all have one thing in common, it seems like. They asked some questions, nobody could answer them, they checked out. So I'm hoping that when we wrestle with questions in here, as tough as this is sometimes, it'll be so that this group will better the odds and there'll be more of us at 30. Last point. This is really depressing to me. Again, research done. For every 100 people who are not Christians at age 18, only six will become Christians during their lifetime. And that one really made me think. Why? It must be, or at least I believe, it has a great deal to do, and others have agreed, with the methods that we use to introduce people to Christ. Let's look at the method versus the message real fast. I believe that salvation is of the utmost importance to Jesus. I believe that almost nothing means more to Christ than to see those that he loves, that are created in his image, come back to an eternal relationship with him. Even though it's very important, Jesus did leave the message in our hands. He could have done this a different way. He could have just come down and said, here I am. Believe in me. But he didn't. He put the message in our hands. True, he is here to teach, preach, heal, love, show by example, and then he packages the whole thing up and hands it to us. He gives it to us and he sends the Holy Spirit. All right? But the message, the delivery mechanism is in our hands. He says, go you to the ends of the earth. It is a grave responsibility how we steward this message. And here's the point I'm driving to. Because of that, we're tempted to try just about anything in the church. We're tempted to try just about any method to reach people, but we have to consider the impact of the method. And notice, I'm saying we have to consider the impact of the method, not the message. The method. Like we're not going to alter Christ's word or the message of the Bible just because we don't like it or it doesn't play well with the audience. Like, hey, we've done some focus groups on the way these uh, laws work and they don't quite work so well in 2008. Let's tweak them. The message is what we've been given. But the method is kind of in our hands. And we need to evaluate whether our method sometimes does more harm than good. It's something we have to steward God cares very much about it, so we have to look at the way we do it. Yeah. Um, I, I think I, yeah, I agree with your point completely. I just, like, could it be even argued that it was only partially left in our hands, really, because the, the Holy Spirit is who saves people, not us anyway. And so the fact that we're tempted to try just about any method, like I agree, that is the case most of the time. Like, Good. You're on my script tonight. Good. What Philip is pointing out is the Holy Spirit was sent into the world to do the work. Our efforts are in partnership. They're not the thing that make it happen. I say the fact that the Holy Spirit does the actual work of calling people to salvation and restoration with God 
is not an excuse for irresponsible methods. Because it's true that the Holy Spirit is the one who really calls people to Christ. But that doesn't mean that we can do anything we want and just say, well, the Holy Spirit's doing the work. It doesn't matter what I do. I can hold up hateful signs like you're going to hell if you don't repent right now and go, ah, but the Holy Spirit's the one who's going to do the work. He probably could do the work despite that, but we're not stewarding the message that we've been given. No wonder only one half of 1% come through most of those other methods. Here's another one that I hear sometimes from people. Like, well, you're just ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm ashamed of you. I'm ashamed of the way that you're presenting it. I'm ashamed of the way that you're subjecting God's fame to this kind of shame. Remember when Paul says, do it with gentleness and respect so that those who speak maliciously against you will be ashamed. If we don't do it with gentleness and respect, it means that we are the ones that should be ashamed. It's easy to throw out that charge to somebody and go, no, you should just get out there in the street and just preach to everybody you know. What, are you ashamed of the gospel? It's like, wait a minute. I steward this gospel very seriously. If you care so much about the souls of other people and they're so valuable to you, think about all the people you're going to do damage to if you don't do this in a way that's honoring and respectful. David Kinnaman again. I want you to hear this because this kind of hit me when I heard this. In our get saved culture, too many of the conversions become aborted believers. That's pretty powerful symbolism. The symbolism there is like you are conceived but aborted. If all we think about is getting somebody to convert or to say a prayer and that's it, then they've been conceived into salvation is the analogy, but they're aborted or they become casual Christians. Why? What's missing? if we focus only on getting people saved. Get them saved. Let's get them to say a prayer. Let's get them to come down at the, the, the front of the concert. Let's get them to do the altar call. Let's get them to say something on the street and like pat them on the back and move on. What's missing in that? Yeah. Sometimes I think it's, it's a follow-up in a sense. You know, like they're going to ask you what's next. And if you don't follow up on that, then you're going to get the aborted believer. Okay. What's the follow-up? Anyone know? Morgan. We're missing the central question. I think that Jesus didn't ask for a prayer. He asked for people to come and follow. And so even the way we frame the whole idea <laughs> is that the person is actually giving an assent to, okay, Christ is now the leader of my life. So there's a following. I mean, it's the way we frame the whole discussion, which I think is what is missed so often. Yeah, major. I think it's kind of also a numbers game. We want to say, oh, we got these, this many people to come to Christ instead of focusing on a couple and doing the follow-up, which I think is a lifelong um, mission, is a follow-up. You know, you're with them for life, helping them grow, helping you grow, and asking questions and, and growing together. Yeah, you could say you're born or conceived into the kingdom on the day you accept Christ, but there's a whole life that follows. Some people say that's the life of discipleship, of following, of equipping, of learning. Some people call it spiritual formation. That now that you are a babe in Christ, I mean, you are in Christ, you are going to attain salvation. Just as Paul says, for those who are justified, they will be glorified. But there's something in the middle. It's the working out of your salvation with fear and trembling part. Between those two bookends, between being justified 
or what we would say, saved, glorified, like entering into the kingdom, there's all that stuff in the middle. And that's the life of spiritual formation and discipleship. Too many times we're so focused on just getting somebody over the line that we don't even offer them anything else. So many churches, so many Christians, forget churches, they basically get you over that line and that's all they need to do. They think they're done. And that's what results in what David Kinnaman regards as an aborted Christian, especially if from up front or the whole culture of the church has a get saved culture and that's it. Nobody will understand that more needs to be done. And I've seen that happen far too often. And I want to be clear, I'm not saying that we should not be engaged in evangelism. This is not about evangelism, it's about the mentality with which you believe evangelism happens. If you believe that your job is done when someone says the prayer, and you're, then you're going to find that a lot of people that you thought came to Christ never made it. And a get-saved mentality, by the way, a get-saved culture is what David Kinnaman is talking about, is not just related to evangelism. It creates a them-and-us mentality. Like, saved people are different than unsaved people. Well, I mean, of course there's some differences. They've, some people have accepted Christ. But they literally start to think of people differently. I was having a conversation with somebody, and I was just telling a story. I have a friend, and they're having trouble in their marriage. And the person interrupts me. Are they saved? <laughs> what does it have to do with the story? Like, I'm talking about a friend who's having trouble with their marriage, and I'm about to tell you a story about how I was able to talk to them and, you know, Tell them a little bit about encouraging things. I mean, I couldn't even get into the story five seconds without the question, are they saved? I mean, if, it would have been any less weird if the, if the person had said, like, well, I have a friend and they're having trouble in their marriage. The person said, are they Chinese? <laughs> what does that have to do with anything? So what does it have to do if they're saved in this story? I mean, do you see when you come from a background where getting them across the line is all that matters? then you start to see people as black and white. And it's true that from a salvation perspective, that's very true about, yes, you're at least in the kingdom. But just so that we're clear, here are the things I'm talking about. Because some people, when they hear about this life of discipleship or this spiritual formation that's supposed to take place that happens between the time you become a Christian and the time that you meet your Father in heaven, what are you supposed to be doing? Just so that we're clear, because I know a lot of people know about it in theory, but sometimes we don't articulate it so clearly, here are some of those things that you're supposed to be doing. Worshiping God, engaging in spiritual friendships, pursuing faith in the context of family, embracing intentional spiritual growth, serving others, investing time and resources for Christ's priorities, having faith-based conversations with outsiders, I mean, leading back to more evangelism, to bringing others into it. So there's a whole thing that we're supposed to be maturing and developing in our relationship with Christ. All right, I want to stop there, and I want to open it up to you guys to go back to the question we started with. Here's what I'd like to know. Just throw it out. I'm not even going to comment. I just want to hear from you. After everything we've talked about in this review over the last few weeks, could you come up with a better model? Is there something you would change? Next week, we're going to come back and kind of maybe redesign a whole thing. But let's hear from you guys. Make churches smaller and stop the like city churches of 5,000 that's totally disconnected where we're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to like make a huge building and keep it running and hire you know hundreds of people like I would take it back down something more intimate more churches smaller churches that actually make an impact like in people's lives I don't know that is me okay no, I agree with that in that making people interactive like this how you're not just sitting there and listening and you kind of tune out but you're involved in you can speak up if you want to or say what you need to say and put in your input. Okay. 
cooperation with other churches, operating on a solo mentality, like we're getting these numbers, like we're better than you for that, like what well, what can you do good? When, you know, what can you do well? Sorry, what can you do well, and what can we do well a week? You know, so we can send people your way if we're not doing it right. You know, and just cooperation with all these churches instead of oh, our church is better than your church. You know. Okay, love that. Yeah. First, I want to say I completely agree. Um, second, I, I think that uh, in some sense, to accomplish that, it needs to be scrapped and started over, and in some sense, like have a fundamental, like set of beliefs that this is what we all agree to and most of the things that we understand are like variants like there has to be some set of things that are agreed upon and that the church as a whole needs to be this is the church and if you aren't part of this belief then like you are not the church and that there is actual like consequences by like following a biblical example of someone sinning and continuing to sin then they're not part of this group okay good there needs to be some kind of set structure governing body which is going to sound weird to christians slash non-catholics there should be a head there should be basically a pope maybe not the pope but there should be a pope because we need an official spokesperson to say this person is not speaking for the church an official spokesperson where everyone recognizes hey this is the guy who's going to say you know, this person is close to God, this, we, and we believe this person communicates well with God, and who can say, you know, I know obviously there should be regulation, you know, it's not going to be like, hey, this guy is king of all Christians. But, you know, <laughs> but there, you know, there is doctrine that has to be established that we say, if you don't line up with this doctrine, you're not speaking for the church. Okay. Yes. Slow it down. I'm going to get to you one by one. I'm coming back this way, okay? Hang on. Okay. Um, something that just continually comes to my mind when I think about what church is supposed to be, I think we're missing, at least the churches I've been in, myself included, the emphasis on service. Because when you're serving other people, it's hard to judge. It's hard, like on the couple experiences where I've had where I'm actually serving, there's a joy there and there's less division because you need those people and they need you to complete whatever you're doing. And I think there's so often in churches the mentality that, you know, there's usually a group of people that tend to do all the service stuff, and you just they just kind of get that role, and then everyone else is like, oh, well, you know, we don't, we don't need to because they're taking care of it. And it's really, if it's the body of Christ, and, it, you know, we're talking about we need all the parts of the body, and I think so many times, like, I know, I've, I've done that so many times where I'll look at, oh, well, you know, hey, Ben's got it under control over there, Ashley with the homeless, I don't need to do anything. I don't know. I think I think we're missing service a lot. I don't think we're taught the emphasis of serving. Okay. Um, I was thinking, especially like I think small group is definitely a core part of it, but just in-depth study of the Bible, not just always a topical discussion, and then you find different verses you want to fit in, but you know, like you know, we were going through Matthew or something where it's in context, you go through the whole thing, and it's in depth because it's just so often it seems like we're away from the Bible and what it says, and we know nothing of it, and then we, you know, will say things out of context, we misquote things, and we don't even really understand what we believe, and then like. Seriously, some churches I've heard like really bad theology, and I'm like, how can you be teaching people this, or how can Christians not know just simple things like that, which is pretty disturbing. So. Okay. Anyone else go this way? Just. 
kind of along what she said and just help Christians understand what Jesus is truly teaching us and not just one aspect of it, but all aspects, you know, not just the salvation aspect, but all of it, looking at everything as a whole rather than individual. Okay, go ahead. Actually, I kind of want to jump off both their points. Um, I'd love to see a church that's more literate, that understands its history, that understands what it means to be a Christian, that just immerses itself in the scriptures and in, um, yeah, just understanding actually what it believes. Um, the other one is what he was saying is that holistic version of what the gospel is. It has to say something in all aspects of life, whether that's um, economics. E everything falls under this. I believe that God, you know, that Colossians and numerous other passages talk about God reconciling the whole world to himself. And so the whole world <laughs> um, is something that the church, I think, has lost sight of as far as well, even dividing what's spiritual, what's not spiritual, like everything has some value of spirituality in it that we need to reclaim and, and care about and, and a church that that looks into all those avenues. Okay. Um, I would just take out the politics in every sense. Like, not just governmental politics, but politics within the church is killing Christianity, keeping people out of it. Hierarchies, people that get too powerful, um, the idea of like a head like that speaking for everyone just frightens me because that I think is what's killing Christianity. It's taking the personal relationship out of it. It's not dividing the power equally. There's not a better Christian than, than you are. Like we all love God. We all have a connection to God and we can all, you know, be a good Christian. We don't need someone to tell us how to be a good Christian. So it's the politics and the hierarchy and the deacons and the this and the that and you're better than I am and tell me what to do. So yeah, get rid of the hierarchy. Abby? I think it's important though, like even as this discussion's going, like John is kind of guiding who's talking, when, who's talking, and like I wouldn't say that John's a better person. No, but I wouldn't say that he's a better person than I am, and I wouldn't say that he's like a better whatever than I am. Like I mean he probably knows a lot more than I do, but he's kind of guiding and directing, and that's kind of like I think kind of what you want is somebody that will guide and direct the church, like, I, I agree, like, having the hierarchy and having the Pope yeah. and all that stuff is ridiculous, but having somebody like, like John, who, you know, a like, leader. is con a leader, who is constantly humbling himself and realizing that he does need to be humble because he's not better than anybody, exactly. and letting other people take leadership, but, you know, it is important to have a leader <coughs> and to have somebody that is Tell kind of guiding. Okay. Ready? As, as far as uh, an official spokesperson goes, uh, the church's actions should be its official spokesperson. Like if God's ability, that sorry, you'll know us by our fruits, and like that should be apparent what our beliefs are and everything, just by our actions. We shouldn't need anybody to speak up and say, hey, you know, like they should just be able to see like what, what we're doing, what we can stand for, and everything. Okay. If there are people in the church who are doing conflicting things, is the problem. But you won't be able to stop them is the other problem. But at least you can say they don't speak for us. I'm probably being too rigid on a hierarchy, but I mean, we're supposed to be a unified, singular body. We're supposed to be one church, and we're many divided churches. That's true. I think that's absolutely true. We can debate that point all night, but I will point out that this letter that I referenced earlier, the land letter, for example, it's written by the head of the Southern Baptist Convention policy office. So there is the largest denomination in the United States. They already have a spokesperson. He wrote that letter telling George Bush that it was theologically sound for him to invade Iraq. There's lots of Christians that will 
be tainted by that statement. Whether it's right or wrong, it doesn't matter. Nobody's going to stop and say, oh, are you Southern Baptist? Are you not? Okay, he didn't speak for you. I mean, he spoke for all of us, whether we like it or not. So it's already either happening or even when it does happen, you're still going to have the problem. But I want to leave it there only because I'd rather want to hear more of your comments on what you think the church should be and come back. So I'm moving this way. Anybody? Anybody? Yeah. Uh, honestly, my husband, I grew up in the church my whole life. And um, just from my personal experiences, what I think is I think we need to treat people as people, not as a number. And we need to love others as we would like to be treated. And we need to get our hands dirty. And um, in that sense, meaning that um, invite everybody all sinners, I think, should be welcome in the church and should have um, a fair opportunity to hear the gospel and to be loved. Um, and, and um, yeah, you know, just go out there and, and, and forget about all this other nonsense and just humble ourselves and be like, you know what, just want one person sharing the good news to another and, and we're all not worthy, you know. Okay, anyone else over here? Yeah. I agree with, you know, uh, loving others, as we, especially non-Christians, as we want to be treated. But I would, you know, in reforming this church, also like to see a reevaluation of how Christians treat Christians. And um, I find that Christians, like I've seen relationships where Christians don't treat other Christians, you know, right. And that to me seems more damaging than when I see two non-Christians, you know, not treating each other right. Because not that I expect that, but, you know, like just a reevaluation of how we not only treat non-believers, but believers. Okay. I think we need to make the church more comfortable for people who like are coming for the first time too. Like, not everybody's staring at them like, oh look, somebody brought somebody. Like, I mean, like a lot of people feel really uncomfortable the first time they come to them because they feel like everybody's staring at them, and then if they get convicted by the message too, they you know they feel like the pastor's staring at them, and then they think everybody's just a bunch of weirdos, you know, like, and they just want to leave. Okay. I think uh, my goes along very well with the, what was just said by the lovely people on the couch. Um, just they will know we are Christians by our love and far too many churches and Christian organizations forget that um, I mean I don't know if it's still in APU's um, bylaws or practices or whatever but that you can get expelled if you're gay or if you get pregnant out of wedlock I'm sorry what now come on seriously how are we loving like our own like these are people that we're supposed to love you know Everybody we're supposed to love, and just it's the same thing like you're saying, like for Christians and non-Christians, like the love needs to be there, and it's just not the judgment is there, and that's not our business. I find it interesting that the three things that you mentioned you could get expelled for are things that would be outwardly manifested; people could see them. You know, so our internal sin doesn't matter, but if it were to show, then you would get expelled. Well, they could if they we had if we had a Christian discipline of confession, but we've ditched that in our churches because. We've traded it in for just outward manifestation of cleaning up our act. So, as Jesus said, whited sepulchers. On the outside, all clean and good-looking. On the inside, full of dead men's bones. That's the epitome of hypocrisy. Anyone else going back this way? Abby. Um, with the whole, like, APU expelling people for, like, for sinning or for outwardly sinning, there's just, like... I was just writing in my journal, like, there's some importance, like, I just came from a very strict Bible college, and I found, for me, like, there was all this controversy about should we be as um, conservative as we are, should we be more liberal, and there was, like, I kind of, I really liked the conservativeness because it left no room for any, like, outwardly actions of sin, and so it left you to only look at what's going on inside. Like, 
I couldn't do anything wrong. And so all I could concentrate on was my heart and my mind actions, you know? For me personally, I have a six-year-old biological daughter. I got pregnant while I was 19 at APU. I didn't know I should have gotten expelled for that. I was just very lucky. I took the time off and APU never found out. I found that out like a year ago and I was like, are you freaking serious? Oh my gosh. We'll, we'll, we'll edit this from the talk so you don't get your diploma pulled, you know. Can you get like, please state your name and spell your last name slowly. There's my phone number so you can all call and condemn me, but I barely went to church while I was pregnant because, I mean, it's a, yeah, it's an outward sin. It's very obvious. You can't hide that, you know. You're nine months pregnant and everyone's going, oh, there's no ring on her finger, you know. And honestly, I didn't want to embarrass my mom. I didn't want the judgment to come around to her. And there are people, I mean, in the years since, there are, you know, plenty of people that are, are still, you know, very loving of me and couldn't care less. Many of them are in this room, and, but there are the ones out there who are going to condemn me for it. And my mom was one of them for a really long time. And it's taken years to get the trust back from, with my parents, you know? Well, as our master said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. You're welcome here and everybody else's to the way we are but hopefully we're on that road to become more Christ-like together. But none of us, none of us, as, as Paul said, I'm chief among sinners, and then there's me right behind him. Last comment? Yeah. That type of mentality causes us to be the type of church that sweeps things under the rug. Like we talk about don't have abortion, what is sin, but like how many people would take the easy way out and be like, I'll just go have a quiet abortion, no one will know, I won't have to suffer the embarrassment, no one will see my sin, or, or we'll just be quiet. We, won't, we don't confess about what we're doing because people will judge us. We don't seek help for what we're doing because we're afraid people will judge. So I think far too many. I knew a girl here who worked at Planned Parenthood, and she said a scary number of girls are making by luck for abortions because they just can't handle it. And I, I understand the impulse, you know? It, oh. Just the condemnation you get left and right is just not okay. I want you to think about this question because we're going to come back to it at the beginning of next week. We're going to kind of pick it up. We're going to, we're going to pick up the question right where we left off. If you have other thoughts, I want you to bring them back. And then we're going to kind of wrap up the series with what can we do? What can we do? Is it just helpless? Are we out of control? As long as Pat Robertson is alive and on the airwaves, are we just doomed? <laughs> what can we do? Let's, let's close and pray. Lord, we commit all these things to you. We're imperfect in so many ways. Even our discussion tonight is imperfect. The emphasis that we chose, the, the biases that we bring to our comments and to the teaching, all of these things are mired in this fallen human sinfulness that we have, Lord. It would be so much better if you were the teacher, you were the one that was here. And I pray, Lord, that through all of this, even through your broken people, even through our broken efforts, that your Holy Spirit still managed to get a hold of this conversation and drive it in the direction that you, Spirit, desire for us to learn. So we surrender all these things, Lord, our sin, our biases, our prejudices, our preconceived notions, even, Lord, our pride when we think we know better, because we honestly desire that this church become the way it was meant to be. And I think so many of us feel like it's just not. And yet, Lord, it's your body, it's your bride, it's all for your glory. Thank you for what we have. And that's the hope and salvation in you ultimately. Not in ourselves. Not even in our churches. Our salvation is in you. Pray in your name. Amen.